Section 24 of Mysteries of London, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Mysteries of London, Volume 4, by George W. M. Reynolds. A Throne Surrounded by Republican Institutions the entertainment was of the most splendid description worthy of the hospitality and taste of the noble host and hostess the prince of montoni was dressed in plain clothes but on his breast gleamed the star denoting his rank and on his left leg he wore the english garter his royal highness having been admitted on the previous day a member of that illustrious order he was seated on the right of the countess of ellingham lady frances being next to him and charles hatfield occupying the place immediately following in addition to these personages and the earl of ellingham mr hatfield and lady georgiana there were sir john lascelles clarence villiers and adelaide and the select few who had been invited to the banquet on this occasion the prince was naturally of a modest and unassuming disposition though endowed with ample dignity to maintain his lofty rank and honourably fill his high position, yet bearing himself so condescendingly and affably that every one felt completely at ease in his presence. Even Sir John Lascelles, who had grown somewhat morose and difficult to please in his old age, was quite delighted with the youthful hero, whose conversation was characterised by so much sound sense and such a total absence of obtrusiveness charles hatfield was delighted at the thought of being once more in company with the object of his worship and he seemed to hang upon every word that fell from the lips of the prince of montoni as if he were listening to a demigod when the ladies had retired the conversation turned upon political matters and the earl of ellingham questioned the prince relative to the condition of the castelcicalans whom report, newspapers, and books represented to be in the highest possible state of civilization, prosperity, and happiness. His sovereign highness, my revered father-in-law, said the prince, has exerted himself in all possible ways to render his people contented and flourishing. The task may seem to be difficult for a monarch to undertake, but it really is not so. Honourable, upright, and liberal-minded ministers are to be found in all countries if the sovereign have but the discrimination to select them indeed a chamber of deputies rightly constituted will be sure to indicate the most efficient and trustworthy men to whom the responsibilities of government may be safely confided every man in castelcicala having a habitation in which he may be said to be settled no matter whether it be a house of his own or a mere lodging has the right of suffrage the elections take place by ballot and thus considering that all save absolute mendicants have the power of voting and seeing likewise the immense number of voters that there are bribery is almost impossible but to ensure as much as mortal means can the purity of election any attempt at bribery or intimidation is counted a misdemeanour and is punished by a fine imprisonment and the loss of civil rights for a period of seven years 
Under these circumstances, our elections take place in an orderly, quiet, and honest manner. The people conduct themselves with propriety, because they recognise the generous confidence reposed in them by their sovereign, and endeavour to render themselves worthy of it. When your Royal Highness liberated Castelcicala and opened the way for the Grand Duke Alberto to the throne, said Sir John Lascelles, who had listened attentively to the Prince's observations, the Castelcicalans were in a state of abject slavery. Were these boons of consummate freedom conferred upon them in a moment? And if so, were the people prepared in any way to receive them? A nation in slavery, Sir John, answered the Prince, is like a body in a condition of deep disease. Now, would you restore that body to perfect health all in a moment, if you had the power? Or would you only effect the restoration by slow and almost imperceptible degrees? As a conscientious and an honest man, I should of course adopt the mode of instantaneous cure, replied the physician. Then, Sir John, your question, whether the Castelcicalans were prepared to receive the consummation of their freedom in a moment, is answered, said the prince, smiling. Believe me, those statesmen who talk of the necessity of gradual reform are either weak and timid, or else, in their hearts, opposed to the interests of the people. Freedom is a nation's right, and a right cannot be recognised too suddenly nor too frankly. Were your fortune in the grasp of a rapacious monarch, should you be contented by receiving it in small instalments, according to his caprice and good pleasure? No, certainly not. You would demand and expect to receive the whole at once, and would consider yourself the victim of a monstrous tyranny, were your claims refused, or ridiculed, or set at naught. Yes, Sir John, the Castelcicalans obtained in a moment, as it were, their emancipation from tyranny and oppression. Immediately after his sovereign highness ascended the throne of that powerful state, he promulgated a decree, not merely conceding universal suffrage as a boon, but at once proclaiming it as the recognised right of the people. He did not say, I give it to you, but he said, I do not for an instant attempt to withhold it. The people saw that they were not treated as children, but as a free and enlightened nation, and they generously proffered gratitude and testified their admiration and respect for their monarch. The chambers assembled in due time, both senators and deputies being elected, and the principle of a hereditary peerage being totally eschewed. Not even is the president of the senate appointed by the Grand Duke. He is chosen by his compeers, as is the President of the Chamber of Deputies. The Grand Duke pledged himself to retain in power or to nominate only those ministers whom the parliamentary majority pointed out, and accordingly the cabinet which I had the honour to appoint during the period when I exercised the functions of regent, immediately after the Battle of Montoni, has remained in office ever since that time, because it is supported by the majority. There is an opposition in both chambers, an opposition consisting of the aristocracy of the old school, high churchmen, and a few very wealthy landowners. And indeed, an opposition is necessary to all good government, because where measures passed by universal acclamation, 
there would be no sifting of all their details to the very bottom. The progressist ministry in Castelcicala is therefore rather thankful to the opposition than otherwise. But the popular voice is entirely in favour of the ministerial party. The Grand Duke is therefore almost a cipher in Castelcicala, observed Sir John Lassell. Not so, returned the prince, mildly, but firmly. There must be a chief magistrate, an executive, in every state, and he is that chief magistrate. Do you suppose that the task of discriminating and rewarding merit, in patronising the arts and sciences, in raising the humble but deserving individual, and in performing all the various services to a country which the supreme ruler must ever have the opportunity of doing, do you not suppose, Sir John Lassell, that these are duties which render a good prince anything but a cipher? It is true that Castelcicala has a throne, but it is surrounded by republican institutions, and it matters very little whether Alberto be called president, grand duke, emperor, or king. There is nothing in the name of the office. All that merits our attention is the extent of the privileges of that office. But the sovereignty of Castelcicala is hereditary, said Sir John Lassell, and yet your royal highness is an opponent to the hereditary peerage. If the principle be objectionable in the one case, pardon me for interrupting you, sir, exclaimed the prince, but you are arguing on a false premise. The hereditary principle is abolished even in respect to the sovereignty. Alberto voluntarily abdicated this dynastic privilege, and one of his first acts was to place his diadem at the disposal of the chambers. He told them that he was willing to obey the sovereign will of the people. The chambers confirmed him in his high office, and of their own accord they honoured me by naming me the heir apparent to the throne. But the hereditary principle is virtually annihilated, because one generation cannot bind its successor, and the law which thus appointed me as the heir apparent may be repealed by a new chamber. It is monstrous to suppose that the hereditary principle can be tolerated by a nation knowing its own power and appreciating its own interests, for that principle may give you a good sovereign today, and a tyrant, an idiot, or a degraded sensualist tomorrow. I admit the force of your Royal Highness's argument, said Lasselle, and if I object, it is rather to seek information on these subjects than to question the excellence of the system of government introduced into Castelcicala. I would now deferentially seek to learn how far that system has benefited the people of your Highness's adopted country. In the first place, Sir John, returned the Prince, the people have the elections entirely in their own hands, and return to Parliament representatives who do not buy their seats, but who are chosen on account of their merits. At least, this observation applies to the great majority of the senators and deputies. The elections take place every two years, so that ample opportunity is allowed the constituents of getting rid of persons who may chance to deceive them or prove incapable while a sufficient space of time is afforded for giving the representatives a fair trial. The result of these arrangements is that the majority of the representatives legislate for the interests of the mass and not of the few. 
good measures are the consequence, and the happiness of the people is promoted, while civilization progresses rapidly, and the prosperity of the country increases daily. My lord, continued the prince, turning towards the Earl of Ellingham, history has recorded the memorable speech which your lordship delivered nineteen years ago in the House of Lords, the speech that first introduced your lordship to the world as a generous defender, vindicator, and champion of the people, and it rejoices me unfeignedly to be enabled to inform you, my noble friend, for so you will permit me to call you, that the speech I allude to, and all your subsequent orations on the same subject, have been studied, weighed, and debated upon in the councils of the Sovereign of Castelcicala. The Earl acknowledged the compliment in befitting terms, and the Prince of Montoni continued in the following manner. To prove to your lordship that it is no idle flattery, of which indeed I am incapable, that I am now addressing to you, I will at once inform you that every suggestion which your lordship's first and grandest oration contained has been carried out with complete success in Castelcicala, anticipating the pleasure of being enabled this evening to give your lordship some account of the condition of the Castelcicalans, I had furnished myself with a copy of the memorable speech to which I have already several times alluded, and I will now explain in detail the results of your lordship's views as exemplified in their application to the Grand Duchy. The prince produced a manuscript, and spreading it before him, his royal highness continued in the ensuing terms, addressing himself to a most attentive and delighted audience. Your lordship stated that it was too frequently alleged that the industrious classes are thoughtless, improvident, ungrateful, and intellectually dull. But this assertion you emphatically denied, and you proceeded to reason thus. Quote, Despair, produced by their unhappy condition, naturally led to dissipation in many instances. But were the working man placed in a position so that his livelihood should be rendered less precarious than it now was, were his labour adequately remunerated, were he more fairly paid by the representatives of property, were a scale of wages established having a fixed minimum but no fixed maximum, the increased comfort thus ensured to him would naturally remove from his mind those cares which drove him to the public house. End quote. Well, my lord and gentlemen, continued the prince, the suggestion has been adopted in Castelcicala. A fixed minimum for wages has been established, the lowest amount of payment ensuring a sum sufficient to enable the working man to maintain himself and his family in respectability. The results may almost be said to have been instantaneous. Crime diminished rapidly. Statistical returns soon proved that intemperance experienced a remarkable decrease and such was the falling off in the consumption of spirituous liquors, beer, and tobacco, that the government found it necessary to grant a compensation to the licensed victuallers, publicans, and tobacconists who suffered by this change in the habits of the people. Even employers speedily began to recognise the advantage of the new state of things in the improved condition of their employed, the increase and the excellence of the labour they obtained, and the superiority of their agriculture or their manufactures. No maximum of wages has been fixed in Castelcicala, 
and when I left the country a month ago, those wages were higher than ever they were known to be before. The demand for labour has greatly increased, and though the territory be densely populated, employment may be found for all. If a man be now a pauper or mendicant in Castelcicala, it must be either through physical infirmity or through his unwillingness to work. Of this latter, however, we have comparatively few examples, emulation and patriotism acting powerfully in a country where so much happiness and such prosperity prevail. Now, with a slight alteration in your lordship's speech, one of the most remarkable passages in that speech reads thus when applied to Castelcicala, quote, there is no fixed maximum of wages because wages are always to be increased in proportion to the value of productive labour to employers, but there is a minimum established to obviate the cruel and disastrous effects of those periods where labour exceeds the demand in the market. This is not considered unfair towards employers because when the markets are brisk and trade is flourishing, they, the employers, reap the greatest benefit from that activity, and enrich themselves in a very short time. Therefore, when markets are dull and trade is stagnant, they are still compelled to pay such wages as enable their employed to live comfortably. The profits gained during prosperous seasons not only enable employers to enjoy handsome incomes, but also to accumulate considerable savings and as the best wages scarcely enable the employed to make anything like an adequate provision for periods of distress it is not deemed fair that the representatives of property should use the labour of the working classes just when it suits them and discard it or only use it on a miserable recompense when it does not so well suit them for the labour of the employed not only makes annual incomes for the employers but also permanent fortunes, and the value of that labour is not calculated as lasting only just as long as it is available for the purpose of producing large profits. Labour is recognised in Castelcicala and positively stated to be the working man's capital and bears constant interest as well as money placed in the funds, that interest of course increasing in proportion to the briskness of markets but never depreciating below a standard value, much less being discarded as valueless altogether in times of depression. A thousand pounds always obtains three percent interest under any circumstances, and at particular periods is worth six or seven percent. Labour is considered by the Castelcicalans in the same light. Stagnant markets diminish the profits of employers, but do not ruin them. If they do not obtain profit enough to live upon, they have the accumulations of good seasons to fall back upon. But how different used to be the case with the employed. To them, stagnation of business was ruin, starvation, death. The breaking up of their little homes, the sudden check of their children's education, the cause of demoralisation and degradation, and the necessity of applying to the parish. All these terrible evils have been completely annihilated by the system introduced into Castelcicala. The supply and demand of labour are necessarily unequal at many times and in many districts, and the government has therefore adopted measures to prevent those frightful fluctuations in wages 
which carry desolation into the homes of thousands of hard-working industrious and deserving families in fact a law has been passed to ensure the working man against the casualty of being employed at a price below remuneration end quote. thus my lord you perceive that so far your views have been most successfully carried out they are no longer a theory i have seen them reduced to positive practice and i pledge myself most solemnly and sacredly to the admirable working of this enlightened reformatory system would that i could see my own fellow-countrymen rendered thus happy raised thus high in the social sphere and thus tenderly cared for by their rulers exclaimed lord ellingham in the impassioned tone of the most earnest and heartfelt sincerity the day must come observed the prince of montoni when the english people will recognise all the grand truths which you enunciated nineteen years ago from your place in the house of lords and if in england you have failed to convince the aristocracy and the landowners of the wickedness of the course they are pursuing are not your labours in some degree rewarded by the knowledge that your lordship's plans have been carried out to the very letter in the grand duchy of castle Sicala. yes and carried out too with such unequivocal success the information which your royal highness now imparts gives me the most unfeigned pleasure said the earl i had indeed read and heard of the recent grand improvements which had taken place in that italian state where there is a throne surrounded by republican institutions but i was not aware indeed the loftiest flights of vanity never could have suggested to me that my views and theories had in any way contributed to the prosperity of the model state as the liberals in england now denominate castle Sicala. to convince you my lord how far your ideas have been applied to the elevation of castle Sicala to its present proud eminence said the prince i will again refer to a passage in your lordship's ever memorable speech and point a few contrasts quote, in england the poor are not allowed to have a stake in the country end quote. i have shown you that the very reverse is the case in the grand duchy quote, in england there are no small properties the land is in the possession of a few individuals comparatively and thus the landed interest constitutes a tremendous monopoly most unjust and oppressive to the industrious classes end quote. in castelcicala the law of primogeniture is annihilated there no man can leave his estate solely to his eldest son it must be divided amongst all his male children equally a charge being fixed upon it for the support of his daughters thus the territory is rapidly undergoing a process of subdivision which admits thousands to the enjoyment of a real stake in the country and breaks down the tremendous monopoly of the landed interest in castelcicala moreover quote, property is compelled to maintain labour as long as labour seeks for employment and occupation end quote what now then is the condition of the castelcicalan people being well treated rendered free and having every possible avenue open to them for the attainment of real property quote, the working classes are not driven by their cares and troubles to the excessive use of alcoholic liquors they do not become demoralized by being compelled to migrate from place to place in search of employment 
they are not forced to go upon the tramp sleeping in hideous dens of vice where numbers are forced to herd together without reference to age or sex they are not unsettled in all their little arrangements to bring up their children creditably and with due reference to instruction they are not made discontented anxious for any change no matter what vindictive towards a society which renders them outcasts and sullen or reckless in their general conduct on the contrary they feel settled in their condition they know that the cottage which constitutes their home is not held upon a precarious tenure they never feel the sickening conviction that if they have bread and meat to-day they may have only bread to-morrow and no food at all the day after the industrious classes in castelcicala are no longer the mere slaves and tools of the wealthy classes they are no longer retained in bondage no longer kept in absolute serfdom by an oligarchy i now pass to another subject said the prince and here again i refer to the speech of the earl of ellingham applying to castelcicala the observations which he used in reference to england the castelcicalan industrious classes then quote, were ground down by indirect taxes in which shape they actually contributed more to the revenue in proportion to their means than the rich the only luxuries which the poor enjoyed and which had become as it were necessaries namely tea sugar tobacco beer and spirits were the most productive sources of revenue if aristocrats reproached the poor for dirty habits as he well knew that it was their custom to do he would ask them why soap was made an article subject to so heavy a tax it was a contemptible fallacy to suppose that because the poor contributed little or nothing in the shape of direct taxation to the revenue they were positively untaxed the real fact was that the poor paid more in direct taxes than the rich did in both direct and in indirect ways when the relative means of the two parties were taken into consideration End quote. such was the state of the industrious classes of castelcicala until their voice was heard in the legislative assemblies and all taxes upon the necessaries of life were speedily removed luxuries alone were left to bear the weight of taxation the duties upon carriage livery servants armorial bearings hunters racers hounds and foreign wines being doubled the prince of montoni paused and the earl of ellingham exchanged a rapid but significant glance with mr hatfield for they both remembered the time when nineteen years previously and when the latter lay on the bed of old death's house they had conversed upon the best means of ameliorating the condition of the suffering millions his royal highness finding that his auditors were most anxious that he should continue his explanations and perceiving that sir john lascelles had become especially interested therein resumed his subject in the following manner the inequality of the laws and their incongruity severity and injustice towards the poor long constituted a crying evil in castelcicala every advantage was given to the rich in the way of procuring bail in those cases where security for personal appearance was required but no poor man could possibly give such security he must go to prison and there herd with felons of the blackest dye 
perhaps on trial, his innocence would transpire, and then what recompense had he for his long incarceration, his home broken up during his absence, and his ruined family? It was possible, nay, it often happened, that a man would lie thus in prison for four or five months previously to trial, and during that period it would be strange indeed if he escaped jail contamination. End quote. In order to remedy these evils, vast facilities were afforded in respect to bail. The respectability and not the moneyed qualifications of the sureties being considered. Thus, a working man may be bailed by any two of his associates who can obtain a good character from their employer. This, of course, applies to charges of a lighter kind, heavier responsibility being required where a serious accusation is involved. But even should an accused have to go to prison until his trial, he is not placed in a felon's jail. He is not, while still untried, subjected to that indignity and contamination. He is confined in a building having no connection with a prison and termed a house of detention. Again, the judges have the power to order a compensation to everyone whose innocence transpires on trial. And I must inform you that the trial may take place as soon after committal as the individual chooses. All depends on the speed which he makes in setting up his defence. When committed, he is asked if he have the means of retaining counsel. If he prove to the magistrate that he is poor, a barrister is immediately provided for him. The trial may come on the very next day, for there are local courts throughout the Grand Duchy, and these courts have no recess, no holiday. Were I, on my return to Castelcicala, to inform a person not well acquainted with English laws and customs, that in this very same enlightened England, a man may languish several months in a common jail awaiting his trial, I should scarcely be believed. And what is the nature of the punishments inflicted in the country of your Royal Highness's adoption? inquired Sir John Lassell. I will tell you, said the Prince. In the first place, we have abolished the punishment of death as barbarian, unchristian, and demoralising. Murder is punished by imprisonment for life, and imprisonment, fine, confiscation of property, in the cases of single men having no persons dependent on them, and the loss of civil rights. These are the penalties used amongst us. The individual who is condemned to imprisonment is not on that account rendered a useless member of society. Every criminal jail is an assemblage of workshops where all trades and manufactures are carried on, and each prisoner must work at his own trade or be taught one. If he have a family out of doors, his earnings go to support that family. If he have none, they accumulate until the day of his release. Should he refuse to work, he is put upon bread and water, and this fare soon compels him to adopt habits of industry in order to obtain plentiful and wholesome meals. Castelcicalan prisons resemble vast factories rather than jails, and so admirable, so salutary, so reformatory is the discipline maintained in them, that a prisoner, on his emancipation, finds no difficulty in obtaining work again. Employers consider in such a case that he has expiated an offence which should not be remembered to his prejudice. 
and he begins the world again with a new character he has as it were passed through a criminal bankruptcy court and obtained his certificate should he however experience any difficulty in finding employment the local authorities are bound to supply him with work at the average rate of wages the results of all these arrangements are striking in the first place a castelcicalan prison is reformatory instead of being a sink of contaminating iniquity secondly a man on leaving a criminal jail is not forced back into the ways of vice if he relapse it must be through determined wickedness but relapses are very very rare in the grand duchy for happily those individuals are few who remain in the ways of crime for crime's sake and now my lord you will perceive how far the framers of all these salutary enactments respecting prisoners and prison discipline were indebted to the following passage in your speech Quote, the criminal laws of england are only calculated to produce widely spread demoralization to propagate vice to render crime terribly prolific a man no matter what his offence may have been should be deemed innocent and untainted again when he has paid the penalty of his misdeeds because to brand a human being eternally is to fly in the face of the almighty and assert that there should be no such thing as forgiveness and that there is no such thing as repentance but the nature of punishments in england is so to brand the individual and so to dare the majesty of heaven for the jails are perfect nests of infamy sinks of iniquity imprisonment in which necessarily fastens an indelible stigma upon the individual he either comes forth tainted or else it is supposed that he must be so under these circumstances he vainly endeavours to obtain employment and utterly failing in his attempt to earn an honest livelihood he is compelled perforce to relapse into habits of crime and lawlessness this fact accounts for an immense amount of the demoralization which the bishops so much deplore but the true causes of which they obstinately refuse to acknowledge the criminal jails are moral pest-houses in which no cures are effected but where the contagious malady becomes more virulent society should not immure offenders solely for the sake of punishment but with a view to reformation of character castelcicala has the honour of having taken the initiative in all the great and glorious reforms which you suggested said mr hatfield turning with admiration towards the earl of ellingham in england reform is much talked of and when a small concession is made for a concession it is in this country to all intents and purposes the people congratulate themselves as if their complete emancipation were at hand there is a passage in the earl's speech resumed the prince which particularly struck the grand duke and the ministers when they were deliberating upon the proposed reforms and ameliorations to be introduced to the chambers that passage ran thus quote, when a poor man is oppressed by a rich one it is vain and ludicrous to assert that the courts of law are open to him law is a luxury in which only those who possess ample means can indulge in a case where some grievous injury is sustained by a poor man the seduction of his wife or daughter for instance redress and recompense is impossible 
unless some attorney takes up the case on speculation, and this is a practice most demoralising and pernicious. But if left entirely unassisted in that respect, the poor man can no more go to Westminster Hall than he can afford to dine at Long's Hotel. Now in Castle Sakawa, a plan has been adopted which seems to meet the difficulties set forth in the Earl of Ellingham's speech, and which does not involve the additional danger of rendering law so cheap as to encourage litigation in every paltry quarrel. To every local court are attached officers denominated the People's Attorneys General, and any poor man having a ground of complaint against a neighbour addresses himself to one of those officers, who immediately examines into the affair, and, if he see that the plaint be well founded, he prosecutes on behalf of the poor man. These officers are paid fixed salaries by the government, and dare not take fees. They are selected with care, and are as incapable of bribery as the judges themselves, and thus every means is taken to guarantee the poor man justice. Seduction and adultery are not made mere pecuniary matters in Castle Sicala, they are punished by imprisonment, and the penalty is very heavy in a case where a rich man debauches a poor man's daughter. I now pass on to the subject of education, and your treatment of this subject, my dear Earl, in your speech, is not the least remarkable portion of the oration. You declared that, quote, it was positively shocking to think that such care should be taken to convert Negroes to Christianity thousands of miles off, while the most deplorable ignorance prevailed at home. The church enjoys revenues, the amount of which actually bring the ministers of the gospel into discredit, as evidencing their avaricious and grasping disposition, while the people remain as uneducated as if not a single shilling were devoted to spiritual pastors or lay instructors. End quote. You boldly quote, accused both houses of Parliament and the upper classes generally of being anxious to keep the masses in a state of ignorance, where instruction is imparted gratuitously, it is entirely of a sectarian nature, just as if men required to study grammar, history, arithmetic, or astronomy on Church of England principles. The whole land is overrun by clergymen who live upon the fat of it. Universities and public schools have been richly endowed for the purpose of propagating knowledge and encouraging learning, and yet the people are lamentably ignorant. It is a wicked and impudent falsehood to declare that they are intellectually dull or averse to mental improvement. Common sense, the best of sense, is the special characteristic of the working classes and those who can read are absolutely greedy in their anxiety to procure books, newspapers, and cheap publications for perusal. The fact is that the mind of the industrious population is a rich soil wherein all good seed will speedily take root, shoot up, and bring forth fruit to perfection. But the apprehensions or narrow prejudices of the upper classes, the oligarchy, will not permit the seed to be sown. Now, as the soil must naturally produce something, even of its own accord, it too often gives birth to rank weeds, and this is made a matter of scorn, reviling, and reproach. But the real objects of that scorn, that reviling, and that reproach, are those who obstinately and wickedly neglect 
to put the good soil to the full test of fertilization." All these observations, continued his Royal Highness, were as applicable to Castelcicala a short time back as they have ever been and still are in England. But the reforms in the church and in the educational system were not the least important of those which characterised the new order of things. The two institutions were separated and rendered entirely independent of each other, the church being abandoned entirely to the voluntary principle and the duty of educating the people being attached to the state, a minister of public instruction being appointed. All sectarianism in education is now abolished. The system is entirely secular. The schoolmasters are appointed by the municipal corporations in the various localities, and their salaries are paid by the state. They are all laymen, for it is now a principle established in the Grand Duchy that parents shall train up their children in the creed which they may prefer. Thus, Protestants, Catholics and Jews all receive the blessings and benefits of the secular education, no tampering with religious opinions, no proselytism being permitted. The whole scheme is on the broadest basis of liberality, and the people are delighted with its working. As for the church, it is entirely separated from the state, and the order of bishops has been suppressed. The Catholic religion is still that of the great majority, but it is shorn of its pomp, and ecclesiastical ostentation and vain display have received a blow which they will never recover. The result is that the Christian creed has been restored to something resembling its primitive simplicity, and such as its divine founder intended. I have now, my lord and gentlemen, given you a hasty, but I hope intelligible, sketch of the condition of Castelcicala at the present day, and it only remains for me to sum up the reforms which have been accomplished, and which completely carry out the views and the theories so ably propounded by you, my dear Earl, nineteen years ago. In the first place, there is a throne surrounded by republican institutions, and the hereditary principle, as well as the law of primogeniture, have been annihilated, never to be revived. Then, we have adopted a minimum rate of wages to prevent the sudden fluctuation of such wages and to compel property to give constant employment to labour. Indirect taxes upon the necessaries of life have been abolished. The laws and their administration are equitably proportioned to the relative conditions of the rich and the poor. A general system of national education has been established and entrusted to laymen, totally distinct from religious instruction and sectarian tenets. A complete reformation in the system of prison discipline has taken place, and establishments have been founded for the purpose of affording work to persons upon leaving criminal jails as a means of their obtaining an honest livelihood and retrieving their characters prior to seeking employment for themselves. And the franchise has been so extended as to give every man who earns his own bread by the sweat of his brow a stake and interest in the country's welfare. The prince ceased speaking, and those who had been his auditors expressed their sincerest thanks for the gratifying explanations he had given them, with so much readiness and affability. Nor less were they charmed to find that a truly liberal and enlightened system of policy 
would stand such remarkable tests and work so well the question whether the nations of europe are civilized enough to receive republican institutions was completely solved to their satisfaction and even sir john lascelles who was somewhat tainted with the doctrines of the old school acknowledged himself to be a convert the party then joined the ladies in the drawing-room where political subjects gave way to discourse upon less serious topics and when the company took their departure the inmates of the lordly mansion did not separate to retire to their respective chambers until they had exchanged many enthusiastic comments upon the character disposition talents and bearing of his royal highness the prince of montoni End of section 24